0: A couple of jobs ago, I was working at an engineering firm where one of our old projects was an apartment building in South Brisbane. Uh, and this, But this wasn't just any old apartment block. Uh, this one was supposed to have the largest green wall in the Southern Hemisphere, at the time anyway. For those of you who don't know what a green wall is, uh, it's where they basically cover the side of a building with plants, greenery, hence the name. Uh, This was supposed to go from level 5 all the way to level 13, the top of the building. It's about 30 to 40 metres high, by the way. And not only that, there were going to be two of them, and it was just going to be like this amazing thing. They put out this huge advertising campaign, really pushing to sell these apartments. Uh, You know, how awesome it was going to be, how sustainable it was going to be, environmentally friendly. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity to be part of something special. So many people bought off the plan, but you know, before they'd started construction. But then once they started, the developers ran into a few problems. This led to them scrapping the green Wall eventually, because it would cost too much money. So instead, they put concrete planters on each floor on the two sides of the building where this is supposed to go, you know, uh, like built-in pots where they put in plants and soil stuff. Because, you know, they needed some greenery to justify the decision. But that didn't work because after like a week, the plants died. So they put plastic plants in. Um, So these people, they bought into this building, they paid probably premium top dollar to have an apartment in this building and all they had at the end were these fake plants. Did literally nothing They were sold a lie. Do you think these people would have acted differently if they knew they weren't going to get a green wall? If they wouldn't get the real deal? That they were effectively being lied to? I think they would have. Because, you know, your understanding of reality, what you know to be true, it shapes your behaviour. It affects how you act. The truth matters and the gospel is no different. The truth of what is the gospel matters because it shapes our behavior and when it comes to the gospel and our understanding of it, it nurtures or inhibits our godliness depending on our understanding of what the truth is. Our knowledge of the truth changes our hearts, our behavior, and making us more like Christ, producing godliness in us and it is evidence of Jesus having an effect on our lives. And knowing the truth of the gospel matters, because by it we have the hope of eternal life, the hope of salvation. We'll see that in today's passage as Paul writes to Titus. The truth of the gospel in us leads to our godliness. Uh, Paul opens his letter to Titus by writing a fairly lengthy introduction. Uh, Only Romans and Galatians have longer intros. Normally we might skip over these parts of the Bible, but I think Paul, here has done this intentionally. He's creating context for the letter, for Titus to not just know what what Paul's telling him, but why? Why else would he write in his intro about things like the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in verse 1 or the hope of eternal life and God who does not lie in verse 2, except for the fact that Paul was setting up what's about to follow? We'll break this down a bit. Uh, so reading from verse 1, uh, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. That word servant sometimes is translated as slave in the NIV, depending on context. Uh, in ESVs, typically translated as servant." But the point is that Paul is entirely subservient to God. He serves no other master. And his job is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, as it says in the second half of verse 1. That means that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the first messengers of Jesus' gospel, so that the faith of God's people uh, would grow, would be furthered, And the way that this is done is through the people having knowledge of the truth, because it leads to godliness. And that's that's the main point for tonight, and why we as Christians study the Bible, that is, God's word, because we believe it's true, and that by reading it, we'll grow in godliness. Now, the technical term for that is sanctification, but put more simply, it's us becoming more and more like Jesus. By letting the truth shape our hearts and minds, we will over time lead lives that are more and more godly, more and more holy. And not just that either, there's another important aspect to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, in addition to godliness, because it's also tied to the hope of eternal life that God's people, God's faithful, i.e. us, have. So it's important we know the truth. Now, what is the truth? What is is the gospel? To summarize it, it's that through Jesus we're saved by grace, through faith, not of works. As we've recently seen going through Ephesians, this was written in chapter 2. So it's not of ourselves or anything we do or have done, but it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and Christ alone that the penalty for our sins, the price for our evil deeds, and the anger of God that was originally meant for us, resulting in death, our death, was taken by Jesus instead. And that's how Jesus paves the way for us to have eternal life, that if we believe in him, if we trust him, if we put our faith in him that he took on all these things then we too will not perish but will have eternal life okay so that's that's the truth that's the gospel that's summarized but think about this what if what happens if you change that message does it matter if you change it like if you change the message of the gospel can it still lead to eternal life well, some might argue yes or some might argue no. It's not, I think it's not quite that simple. On the one hand, you could argue that some points of teachings are so small or insequential that they don't really matter, like some parts of it, that they don't really affect the main message at all. Like, for example, whether or not we should use actual wine in our communion or instead of grape juice. No, it doesn't really matter. But on the other hand, some things really do matter. Like, if you claim to be a Christian and you're teaching people that Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead, then I don't think I can eat with you. And if you know me, I like eating. So there is definitely a line where it's gone too far, where the gospel message has been changed too much, such that it's not the gospel. I won't try. Sorry. I won't try to define where that exactly that line is tonight. Uh, because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but the core message of the gospel needs to stay intact. The main thing needs to stay the main thing. If we know that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, for example, and someone says you need something else in addition to having faith in Christ in order to be saved, then are they speaking the truth? If they say you need to, say, for example, speak in tongues or to be circumcised, as well as having faith in Christ, then are they teaching the same thing? Are they really preaching the same message that was entrusted to Paul as he writes in verse 3? Well, I don't think so. Well, that's the problem that they were facing uh, in the Cretan church. False teachers were teaching things contrary to the truth of the gospel. Let's have a look at um, verse 10, uh, reading from there. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Paul left Titus in Crete to finish what was left unfinished, to take actions to preserve the local church and to deal with false teachers and those who, according to Paul, whose actions deny God, as it says in verse 16. I think it's likely that there were two things going on here. Uh, one, external influences were corrupting the gospel, that is, people coming into the church from the outside, bringing false teaching with them. And two, internal influences distorting the gospel uh, and corrupting the church, people within the church who taught things that simply weren't true, whether it came from themselves or they just come... You know, came up with something over the last you know fifty years or so I'd say the church in the Western world has tended to focus on threats coming from the outside but I think there can be significant threats to the gospel from inside the church as well uh, the external influences are easier to understand conceptually so I'll go through that first um, we have the example of the circumcision group mentioned in verse ten uh, as an example of some false teaching they had. We know from the rest of the New Testament that these people taught that Christians needed to essentially become Jewish still, and they needed to follow a lot of the old Jewish law that wasn't necessary or relevant anymore, the most obvious one being circumcision, hence the name. But without getting too bogged down into the details, at the heart of these people were teaching a different message, a different gospel, one of faith, plus Old Testament Jewish law, or to put it more bluntly, faith plus works. That's not the gospel. And the church needs to recognise when someone claims to be one of us, yet brings us a different gospel to what Jesus originally taught. In practice, in practice recognising it may not be that easy, but I think as a concept, it's not too difficult to understand how external influences could pose a threat. However, I think internal influences corrupting the gospel can do a lot more harm, and often that's because people just don't realise until it's too late. This is especially true when people don't properly understand the difference between the ways of the Bible and the ways of their own culture. If we take the Cretans case, uh, reading from verse 12, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now, is Paul just being racist? I don't think it's that simple. The ancient Cretans had one Greek god they held above all of the others, Zeus. Uh, Most of you would have heard of him, the god of thunder. He's the most prominent Greek god, I think, in Greek mythology. But what about his behaviour? How much do you know about that? Well, it wasn't good, to say the least. Zeus was notorious for being indulgent, treacherous, and completely lacking in self-control. But that's the god that the Cretans followed. They followed his example. The Greek historian Polybius in 2nd century BC wrote things like, with few exceptions you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete. He also said the Cretans are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatever. Essentially, he's saying that as a collective, as a culture, they were really bad people. But the thing is, that was normal for them in their culture. So they didn't think that anything was wrong with their behaviour even after coming to faith in Jesus and understanding the gospel, which is why Paul tells Titus in verse 13 to rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. And I don't want to give you the idea either that when compared to us today, the Cretans were particularly horrible people. While, yes, it is true that Paul may have agreed that they were liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons, these aren't aren't subtle sins. They're obvious sins easy to spot. Look here in uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 3, where Paul writes, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So it doesn't mean that the Cretans were more sinful than us, and Paul recognizes that, or that they needed the gospel more than we do. We're not immune to such sinful behavior. We all need the gospel. Uh, Reading on, uh, Paul continues describing these rebellious people in verses 14 and 15. Uh, People who don't know God, who rebel against God, reject the truth, uh, whose minds and consciences are corrupted, who deny God by their actions that they claim to know him, who are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. These people... They're completely and utterly incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ and his people, the church. Yet, they were inside the local church in Crete. As we've seen in previous weeks, uh, going through Ephesians here at KPC, the doing of good works is evidence of faith in someone's life. Uh, Evidence of the faith that we profess and the grace God has shown us. Grace teaches us to say no to unrighteousness, to reject it, and to fight the sin in our lives. But what do you do when there are people within the local church who deny God by their actions, who are completely unfit to do good works? How do you identify and then deal with this problem like was in the Cretan church? Paul's answer is, first answer is, appoint elders. Uh, when writing this letter, Paul's first priority is to tell Titus to appoint elders to each each local church area to address this, to encourage others by sound doctrine and to refute those who oppose it, as it says in verse 9. So uh, what is an elder and what do they do? It's good that we have lots of elders here tonight, by the way. Uh, an elder is a caretaker of God's people, a leader of they're you know, that immediate part of God's big family, or, you know, in other words, a local church. Uh, and I should note, when we think of elders, uh, we might be tempted to take what we do or have here at KBC and read it into the text here in Titus. But while there are similarities in the characteristics and qualities Paul requires of an elder and what we, what, what we expect of our elders, there are also some differences. And Paul wrote this letter before we had KPC or Presbyterianism, so I think what he wrote takes precedence over what we do necessarily. Um, Moving on, if you take uh, verses 6 to 9, Paul's written a whole list of qualifications that a person must meet in order to be an elder. Uh, But what kind of qualifications are these? What is he looking for? It appears that, as a minimum, elders should have upstanding character and some level of competence. Uh, let's step through these verses, and I'll explain what I mean a bit more. Uh, starting from verse 6, a man, one who's blameless, uh, a man who's faithful to his wife. Uh, there the ESV says, uh, the husband of one wife, I think implying not more than one wife. Um, a man whose children believe and aren't wild and disobedient, suggesting that if you can't take care of your own household, how can you manage God's household? This isn't to suggest, by the way, that you need to be married with kids in order to be an elder. Uh, Otherwise, technically, Paul himself is disqualified on both counts. But if you are married with kids, then you need to have your house in order. Your family can't be dysfunctional and falling apart. Verses seven to eight lists more requirements: something, someone not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, but someone who's hospitable, who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are overwhelmingly issues of character. Does he live a godly life, a life of obedience to Christ? Has he let the knowledge of the truth shape his life? changing his heart and mind and leading him to grow grow in godliness. Now, elders also have to be able to do the job. In verse 9 it says they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message and to be able to encourage the others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So it's not only just good character that's required. Uh, Competency is important as well, as they do work hand in hand. But I'm highlighting character here because I think not only does Paul do that but I think our tendency as well in this in Australia is to focus on competence on ability above all else if you look at most job applications nowadays their focus is very much competence on skills and experience whereas the position of elder yes it needs that but it also needs godly character i'll give you an example of what happens when you only have competence Uh, with no character. Uh, When I was in my last job, so this is like less than two years ago, by the way, uh, they hired a senior engineer, a senior fire protection engineer, to be precise. His resume was impressive, very experienced. His area of expertise overlapped with mine, so I ran a few things by him, and he knew what he was talking about. All of the knowledge was there. Thing is, though... (laughs) After his first day, we never saw him again. He just didn't show up. So they tried emailing him, calling him. The the director even went to his house, his listed address, only to find his ex-girlfriend who said she hadn't seen him for two weeks. And so, you know, a few people in the office started talking about it, you know. Uh, What's going on here? And it turns out some more red flags came to the surface. Uh, He spent half his time that day eating junk food. I think that day I saw him go for like 10, if not 15 smoke breaks. Uh, In his interview, he left uh, gum under the boardroom table. Um, And the icing on the cake, I think, was after a few weeks of not showing up to work, he emailed the company asking when he would get paid. I'm just like, oh, yeah. Fun fact, actually, he applied to the company I'm at now and I told him, don't do it. Uh, now, imagine if we had elders like that. That's why Paul emphasizes godly character as such an re- important requirement for elders. Yeah, sure, competence is important, but what would you do if you had elders that weren't godly, who had bad character, you know, like... They were lazy or they had malicious intent or were greedy for money. And not only that, elders are supposed to be role models as well as leaders of the church. They're to be an example for all Christians on how to live in a godly way. I don't think any of the requirements Paul lists are specific to elders alone. And yes, it is true that elders should have a lot more of this stuff sorted out before they can be in a position to lead the church and God's people. But it doesn't absolve all the rest of us of our calling and need to strive to live a godly and blameless life. So ask yourself this. Are you living a life of godliness right now? Are you looking to grow in your knowledge of the truth of God's word? Are you letting your knowledge of the truth impact and change every single part of your life? Or are there still parts of your life you refuse to share with God or parts of your life you refuse to submit to God? Can you truly say with complete honesty that Christ Jesus is more important than yourself, whether it be uh, your family or your children, your money, your career, your ability to travel, your experiences, your own pleasure or your own academic success? Or do these things mean that you don't have time to pray, you don't have time to read the Bible, to go to church or growth group or youth group or to even support your fellow Christians in their time of need? Do these things mean that it's not important for us to control our temper, to watch our language, to act justly, to give generously, and to share the gospel with those around us. For the gospel is the truth that gives us hope of eternal life and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If we believe in him, he forgives us our sins and we won't perish, but we'll have eternal life. That truth should change us and should make us more godly if we truly believe in it. If there are parts of your life you refuse to give to God, I pray that you would consider to give it over to him. Uh, Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for what he did for us in dying on the cross in our stead, that through him uh, we have eternal life. May you work in every single part of our lives uh, through uh, this knowledge of the truth that we have um, to change our minds and to transform our hearts, to grow in godliness and to be more like your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.